Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Political Party. This one featuring former Chancellor Alistair Darling. Alistair's someone that I've wanted to interview for a long time and it's taken me a couple of years, I think, to convince him um, to, to come and do the show and he didn't disappoint. He was a, a great mix of, of wit and charm and deep um, political experience and judgement and uh, economic expertise. And 10 years on since the credit crunch, it was fascinating talking to him about being at the centre of all that from a government point of view, because, of course, he was the person who designed the rescue package that that saved the UK economy and, uh, even though it was a misspeak when Gordon Brown said it, saved the world in economic terms. So he deserves huge credit for that. Uh, Thank you to all of you who who came on the night. It was fantastic in the debating hall at the Gilded Balloon, huge place um, where Alistair and I had our chat. And we talked about various things, as you'd imagine, Gordon Brown and Brexit, the election, the financial crash, Scottish independence, of course, he was at the heart of that as well, leading the Better Together campaign. He is a, uh, as you'd imagine, very charming and exceptionally intellectual individual and was just great company. And the hour flew by. So enjoy the show. Also, um, thank you for coming to see me in Edinburgh. I'm on tour uh, in the coming months, so I may well be coming to a town near you. So the dates I've got at the moment, this is for my brand new show, a show hastily rewritten in light of recent events, which will no doubt change between now and the time you come to see it, hopefully. Um, On the 30th of September, I'm at the Taunton Brewhouse. On the 1st of October, I'm at the Durham Gala Theatre. At the 13th of October, I'm at Southport, the Atkinson. At the 14th of October, I'm in Corby. 18th of October, St Albans. 21st of October, Carlisle at the old fire station. On the 27th of October, I'm in Stourbridge at the Town Hall. On the 8th of November, I'm in Canterbury at the Marlowe Theatre. On the 10th of November, in Worcester at uh, Worcester Live. On the 11th of November, Chorley's Little Theatre. On the 17th of November, uh, I'm in Fareham at the Ashcroft. On the 18th of November, I'm in Exeter at the Phoenix. And on the 24th of November, I'm at the Ghost the Gloucester Guildhall, and that's me on my own doing my brand new stand-up show. Um, it would be absolutely great to see you there. For those dates uh, and for more, check out the website, mattford.com slash live. But in the meantime, I leave you in the presence of one of British politics's true greats, Alistair Darling. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. Uh, lovely to see so many of you here. Uh, as you know, uh, as many of you may know, this is um, a special Edinburgh edition of a show that I host in London where I interview major political players from across uh, the political spectrum. And today's guest is someone I've been badgering uh, for quite some time to try and get an interview with. I was a big fan of him when he was in government and uh, his book, Back from the Brink, about his period as Chancellor, it's one of the best political biographies I've ever read. It's a real honour to welcome today a man who is at the heart of two seismic political events, the economic crash and he designed the rescue package that effectively saved the global economy and kept Scotland in the UK as part of Better Together. Please give a huge welcome to Alistair Darling. Well, Alistair, thank you for finally letting me interview you. Well, better late than never. Let's hope so. Um, well, I mean, these are, these are exciting times for Labour politicians, aren't they? Uh, a Labour party back on the brink of being in government. You must be delighted with 
What's happened to Labour recently? Well, look, let me start on the positive side. Um, you know, clearly our election campaign was a lot better than was predicted. And what is encouraging, a lot of younger people who've been turned off from the Labour Party for some time have come back. What I would say, though, is I think you just need to be careful here. We are still 60 seats short of having a majority of one. Now, 60 seats is a lot which you've got to win. I think you also need to bear in mind uh, that you know people voted for us for lots of different reasons. In Scotland, uh, as those of you who live here will know, the general election was all about whether or not you wanted a second referendum. It wasn't about health or education or any of the usual things. Um, and you can't be sure that it's still going to be there in three or four years' time. And I don't think, by the way, there's going to be a general election anytime soon. And I firmly believe, and I've always believed, you cannot win an election in this country unless you win the middle ground. And I think we've still got a bit to do there. But nevertheless, Corbyn owns the, the result, doesn't he? He had, he had a far better result than, than even his supporters thought he would. He's, he's got Labour up to sort of 40% of the polls Absolutely. now. Absolutely. But I, I just, you know, in any general election, you've got to remember the next one will be different. For a start, it won't be Theresa May running, running, leading the Tories. You know, we know that. It'll be somebody else, but we don't, we don't know who. We don't know what how Brexit's going to pan out. Well, in my view, it's going to pan out very badly, but the fallout of it, you know, that's, that's not clear yet. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that, frankly, we got through the general election without being looked at too closely, like if you really do want to write off um, student debt, and by the way, I think that is something that does need to be fixed by whatever government's around because it's just going totally wrong now. Um, people are going to ask, well, how much does this cost? And, you know, how are you going to pay for it? So all I'm saying is, yes, it was a lot better than people thought, but are the fundamental problems that Labour has not really faced up to, frankly, since 2010, are still there. What's our vision of what the world of Britain ought to look like um, in the next uh, 10, 15, 20 years? Europe is a case in point. I've been a member of the Labour Party for 40 years now, and every morning when I listen to the radio, I'm bound to say whether I listen to the Tories or our people, there's times when I'm damned if I can understand what our position is. And you can't win an election if voters, you know, and I am a fairly committed voter, uh, don't actually understand what our party's position is. Do you have any sympathy for Theresa May? I mean, I, I, I'm just trying to think of other prime ministers that have become rapidly unpopular in office and <coughs> sort of lost public confidence in your, your proximity to them or otherwise. I mean, it's a difficult job being prime minister, isn't it, and getting those judgment calls right because. Gordon was in a situation where everyone was telling him to call an election. In fact, he was telling some people he was going to call an election, and he didn't. I wonder if, in retrospect, actually, Gordon Brown made the right decision in not calling that election. Yeah, I, I think if we'd called an election in 2007, we could well have lost. The, the big mistake there was to let allow speculation to run, and people thought there was going to be an election, and then when we said there wasn't going to be it, and we weren't going to have it, uh, because we thought we might win, and it was too early to win, you know, that doesn't seem sound altogether convincing. Um, I think that the, the problem that Theresa May had is she convinced herself that there was no opposition anywhere, that she could win a stonking great majority and maybe fix, face down the hardline Brexiteers, which have destroyed three of her predecessors in the Conservative Party. But the problem was that she ran the campaign, basically she campaigned on a platform of no hope. Uh, you know, and, and allowing Jeremy Corbyn to come in with a, on a platform of hope. And in politics, no hope n really doesn't win. Um, you know, hope wins, it may be dashed soon afterwards, but you know, at least people think well, we're heading in the right direction. And she got herself into that position because she campaigned on no hope. The second thing she did was to tell the core Tory vote, 
who own houses that frankly they're going to lose all their money because it's going into personal care and that is what those of you who remember the excellent documentary series yes minister uh, you will know that that is a decision that is, that is described as being courageous <laughs> if you tell your core support vote for me and you're stuffed you know it, you're in difficulty yeah, in, in her defence, you know, elderly people are more likely to vote Conservative. They're also more likely to forget. <laughs> in my experience, they don't actually when it gets to go to the polling station. The other thing that I think she's got very wrong, this is, you know, where I'm saying Labour may have got a lot of borrowed votes in Scotland, but also I suspect in, the, you know, the big cities in England, and that is an awful lot of people who voted Remain thought, I'm not voting for a hardline Brexit party, I'll vote Labour, they're not going to win, but I'm going to vote Labour because I want a clear signal to the government, you cannot get away with a hardline Brexit. We never voted for that um, in 2016. Uh, just thinking today, how many people here remember the customs union being discussed in 2016? I mean, how many people actually knew we were in the customs union in 2016? And yet today, you've got the absurd position where the British government is saying, we want to leave the customs union and here are our new proposals so we can get back into it. But it's going to be a slightly different one because it's got new technology, which is we know works very well when government gets its hand to it. So um, <clears throat> I, 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 I just think that, that um, where the Tories got it wrong uh, was, you know, I think the thought they could just, you know, vote, vote for me and it, you know, it's, it's all going to work out. It's great and strong to tell the electorate that basically you're going to lose out if you vote for me. And also, I think they underestimate the fact that a lot of people in this country do not like what's happening to our country and are fearful about it, not just for themselves, but for their children and their grandchildren. And I'm one of them. I, didn't, of... I, I did vote Labour. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of Corbyn, then, I mean, he's been an MP for a long time. What's your personal relationship with him like? Well, I haven't actually met him. Um, you, you've got to understand that... It, You're always in, in different <coughs> lobbies. Yeah, it, well... <laughs> in the House of Commons, you tend, you tend, MPs tend to meet each other uh, when you're voting. The lobbies are quite big, you know, they're not, you know, they're almost about a third of the size of this room in width. And that's where you mill around. It takes about 20 minutes to vote, so you bump into your colleagues and ask how they're going, or people, if you're a minister, they can come up and lobby you and so on. And on 500 of the occasions that I was voting for with the Labour Party, he was not. So, <clears throat> and also, to be fair to him, as a London MP, you don't tend to come into the Commons except to vote. Mm. Uh, so, no, I, I, mean, I honestly don't know what he thinks. That's why, you know, at Europe, I, I really don't know deep down what he feels. You know, I don't think, maybe it's the same as America, where he in, actually intrinsically doesn't like it. Um, I, I simply don't know. In terms of his economic policy then, and, and, and John McDonnell's economic policy, is it, is it something you would, you would praise? I mean, there are various stats banded around about Labour's manifesto. I thought the one thing that really escaped a lot of uh, scrutiny was this £250 billion investment fund. I mean, it, it, have you seen the magic money tree lately, and, and have you watered it? Well, before you knock the magic money tree, the, the Ulster Unionist Party in, uh, in Northern Ireland certainly found out where the money tree was very quickly. <laughs> so money can always be found. No, I, you know, I think, uh, the, the, frankly, one of the interesting things about this generation, one of the other interesting things is, it is, again, it's the first one I can remember where the economy wasn't centre stage. On either side, no one was saying, well, where's the money coming from, or what are you planning to do? I happen to think, I mean, you mentioned the investment fund, our economy is now, you know, it's had stuttering growth, you know, for the last um, five years. By the, way, by the way, it was growing when we left office in 2010. I get my retaliation in first here. Um, and then it stopped about 2012 and it got going again. But it's now slowing down. 
And I've always been in favour of, uh, when that happens, the correct economic response is that the government can stimulate the economy, and one of the best ways of doing it is building infrastructure, not stupid things like HS2 um, or, um, or, or things like that, but a lot of investment in railways, you know, in road infrastructure and so on, um, you know, making sure the internet does actually work in all parts of the UK. All these things are very sensible, which, you know, was part of, um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's plan as well. Where, you know, I, you know, I mentioned the student loans, which I say this is a problem that whoever's around is going to have to sort this out, because it cannot be right that you're actually saying to people, it's all right, you've got this big debt, but you don't have to repay it. I mean, that's morally wrong, never mind economically mad as well. But, you know, I've noticed that since the election, um, Jeremy Corbyn has been very courageous and said, well, actually, I didn't say we'd write it all off. Um, but, um, you know, th there's lots of things that, you know, frankly, in the next election, people will be asking these questions. I've fought lots of general elections on both sides. And unless you actually know how your sums are going to add up or you've got a convincing way of, con uh, you know, of explaining things, then, you know, you will lose out. Do you still feel part of the Labour Party? Yes, I remember it for 40 odd years, and I still very, very much part of it. And <clears throat> you know, you know, I sp spent the general election in Scotland. Since it would surprise you to know that Mr. Corbyn didn't ask me to come and share a platform with him or <laughs> anybody else. And um, it, I was struck. What I was struck was by was the comradeship, the solidarity of party members. You know, I happened to uh, until uh, May. I lived in the constituency of the only Scottish Labour MP, Ian Murray who had a majority of a few hundred, it's now 15,500. Um, uh, but, you know, I was very struck by that. So, yes, I do, but, you know, I, what I find frustrating is that I don't see any sign of us, you know, making the preparations that I think we need if we're going to win the next election. And one of them, you know, I know where Gordon stands in, in, in the spectrum of the Labour Party, uh, but there are actually some very good, very talented people in the Labour Party who are now being excluded. And you can't run any political party, which is inevitably a, a coalition to some extent, by you know, excluding people. In, in terms of economics, then, it's, it's central to your political identity, really, and, and to your reputation, saving not just the UK economy, but arguably, as, as Gordon famously misspoke, saving the world. Yes, but, well, I, I draw the line at that, right? <laughs> <laughs> but there was, there was an element of truth, isn't it? In it wasn't there? And, and, and in your book, Back from the Brink, which is a fantastic read, some of the twists and turns just in getting Gordon and others to realise there was a problem is, is fascinating, and then from that point on, uh, terrifying as well. But Fred Goodwin is someone who, who is, a, is a large part of the book, and one of the stories that I, I can never, that never leaves me is this, when he sort of turns up at your house, unannounced with a kind of, with a, with, is it with a cake or a sweetbread or something? It's a panacetta, it turned <laughs> up. It's, it's, you're always worrying when, you know, some of you will be familiar of the bank manager writing to you saying, can you come in and discuss uh, your overdraft? But when your, your bank manager turns up on your doorstep, you realise things are really difficult. Uh, <clears throat> and, you know, Fred Goodwin lived not that far away of where we live, and you know, it, it wasn't quite unannounced. It was, it was arranged um, uh, at fairly short notice, but it did come with this panacetta, which we had until quite recently. I don't know what happened to it, but um, it, we kept it as a collector's item. Um, uh, it's collateral. What <laughs> about as much collateral as we're ever going to get? Uh, you know, every time I go past the RBS headquarters at Goburn, opposite Edinburgh Airport, I, used to, I sometimes think I used to own that. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, going going back to you know the the, the problems we had um, in October 2008, um, you know the, the banking system, and therefore you know I suspect 
you know, civil society came within hours of total collapse. Mm. So I will always remember on like the morning of the um, uh, the 7th of October in 2008, I'd had a meeting with the CEOs and chairman of the big British banks the night before, and I told, outlined to them most of the rescue plan, which we were going to force the banks to build up more capital and so on. And I said, when they were leaving, I said, on no account talk to anybody about this, because if it gets out, there will be blind panic in the morning. Now, it took precisely 30 minutes before the Financial Times was on the phone. And then five minutes later, the excellent Robert Peston, who was then still with the BBC, phoned up with a very accurate account of what had happened. And of course, they were all pointing the finger at RBS. So the next morning, RBS shares tanked. They were hemorrhaging billions of pounds. Remember, at that time, RBS was the biggest bank in the world. And to give you some, size of its, some sense of its size, it was the same size as the whole of the British economy. It was that big. And uh, when I, I'd had to go to, um, to one of the meeting of uh, finance ministers in uh, Luxembourg, which is obviously my successors wouldn't have to be doing that anymore. Uh, but um, I, I was called out to take a call from the then chairman. And it was what he said to me was the first time I ever had a truly scary call. You know, I, he told me it was the, the thing that was hemorrhaging money, and he said, he said, what are you going to do about it? And I, it was the masters of the universe were asking me what I was going to do about it. And I said, look, you know we've got a plan. I said, how long can you last? And he paused to him and said, I think we're going to write it, run out of money after lunch today. Now, you think about it. If RBS had shut its doors, the cash machines had gone off, the queues you'd seen 12 months earlier outside Northern Rock would have looked like small beer. And what would be worse is, people think if the largest bank in the world can fail, then so can my bank. And there'd have been queues there. You saw three weeks earlier, you'd seen Lehman's, you know, people pouring out of the building, clutching their belongings. It would have brought down the banking system, I suspect, in the Western world. And that, imagine no money, no food, no petrol, nothing. And that would have led to blind panic. So we couldn't allow it to happen. When people say to me, why didn't you just let them go bust? It would have been an interesting experiment, which people could have been giving lectures at Edinburgh University for years to come on the subject. Uh, but um, I wouldn't be sitting here now. Um, so, you know, it, it had to be done. But uh, it was when, 12 months earlier, when Fred came to see um, me in my house, um, you know, there was absolutely no inkling. And, you know, as, as one of someone else in RBS said, you know, the problem is the regulators don't understand RBS. But it turned out it wasn't just the regulators didn't understand RBS. There was an awful lot of people who didn't understand it, as we're still seeing today. One of the great frustrations from a, from a progressive point of view is that the, the bailout, the rescue package, actually, politically, was trashed by left and right. That the moment Labour left office, Ed Miliband's Labour Party wanted to distance itself from it, and the Tories wanted to distance themselves from it and attack it. And what you've got now is, I meet left-wing people who say, oh, well, they bailed out the banks, why don't they bail out the NHS? They don't understand that was working people's money that would have evaporated. And the Tories say, well, you know, Labour presided over uh, a crashed economy. The view has sort of taken root on right and left. Yeah, and there was a disaster. It, it, it is, it, it's one of the frustrations. Um, and you know, <clears throat> there's a lesson here, too, for the Labour Party. If you trash your own government's record, then don't be surprised that eventually people believe you. Um, uh, you know, let's be very clear, because I know you've got questions later, um, that yes, we got things wrong. Every government does, it makes mistakes. But, you know, we did a lot of things that were right. Child poverty being reduced, pensioner poverty being uh, reduced, record number of new building hospitals and schools being built and so on. Um, uh, so yeah, it is, it is depressing. Um, though, I just wonder actually, because, Someone like you or me, 
uh, can sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that everybody is listening to every radio program, looking at every television program, and so on. Most people will are fairly, you know, disengaged and just looking at it and saying, "Well, you know, I just get the general impression of whether I like people or not, or whether, you know, just you know, for people of my age, going around the generation today and saying, remember Thatcherism,' I'm not going to say, "No, I don't." You know, who is she? You know. <laughs> To the older people in this audience, yeah, you'd remember, but you know things move on, so I I don't dwell on it that much. The, the story at the time of the rescue package that it was it was sort of thrashed out over a curry. That was the mechanics of it. <laughs> and and what um, <laughs> do you um, do you remember what curry you had? No, I, I I don't because all these bankers ate the stuff. You know, <laughs> and one I my one recollection, two recollections of that night was in a corridor of the Treasury, which has got long, very long old Victorian corridors, watching the CEO of one of Britain's biggest banks uh, standing there being addressed by two 30-somethings uh, Treasury um, uh, employees who are very, very bright. And I heard this young woman saying, you know your bank is bust. And he said, no, it's not. And she said, it is, just look at the numbers. And you just thought, here's this you know, young, fairly junior official who had understood the workings of this particular bank. The, se the second thing I remember later that night, they wouldn't go away till I would go away because they thought, like all bankers, there might be a better deal. And one of them said to me, what if we don't accept this? And I said, well, tomorrow morning at seven o'clock, you can explain that there is no more money for the banks and you'll be bust. And you know, it, just, it was amazing that they just, even at that stage, didn't focus on the fact that our banking system was about to collapse as it was in America, which is why, you know, uh, within weeks, whether it was Republican-led America or communist-led China, they all did the same thing, the thing that you're referring to criticize, we put a lot of money into the economy to boost it. The problem now, 10 years later, is that whilst that was all great for shock therapy, which is what it needed, no one imagined that 10 years later we would still be doing things like quantitative easing and, you know, and. Um, uh, you know, living in interest rates that are so low now that you know, when they start going up, I think there's going to be another round of problems. It brought the economy uh, almost to the brink of catastrophe. It also tested your relationship with, with Gordon Brown, someone that you'd known for a very long time, that you'd had a long professional relationship with, and there are many stories in the book about the forces of hell and all the rest of it. There's a great quote about Damien McBride, who was Gordon's enforcer, and he said he would look at you rather the way a butler looks at a, a butler looks at someone his master has married that he doesn't approve of. Yeah, that's, that was one of the nicest things he did to me, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these, you know, this, this is, uh, you, know, you know, years ago. But, you know, it, it's... Um, I couldn't help but laugh, um, you know, when after the election, uh, Theresa May didn't sack uh, um, Philip Hammond. Philip Hammond. And uh, Philip Hammond, as you may have observed, seems to be running a completely different policy to the rest of it. And all I'd say is a chancellor is never more powerful uh, than when the prime minister has just failed to sack him. <laughs> you can do what you want. <laughs> it must have been difficult to handle that relationship personally, though, because it, it's sort of, it'd been, to some extent, widely known that he promised the job to Ed Balls and then changed his mind. I mean, it, just in terms of an individual handling that situation, you know, was your pride hurt? Were you tempted to tell him to stick the job of who's behind? No, you know, just think, you know, if, if Ed had got the job, he wouldn't have been the dancer he now is. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> I 
all these things work out for the best on the long run. But the dancer you could have been, Alistair. Yes, well, except in my case it wouldn't. Um, as anyone's ever watched me try and go around the dance floor, I almost killed a pensioner once. And I you know, if, if you're an MP, you go to Christmas parties like this. I had to dance with this old lady who was actually a very good dancer. Unfortunately, she, I think it was my fault, she tripped over my feet and went underneath the the flaps of the tent and out into the grounds of it, this thing takes place. It's a sort of photo opportunity you don't really want. Mm. Claire Short hasn't spoken to you since. <laughs> <laughs> but it must have been tricky, that relationship, uh, particularly towards, towards the end of government where things were starting to... Yeah, of course it is, I mean, it is, and it's always, it's always difficult when you've known someone for years, but, you know, it was difficult, but, you know, you get over it. You know, we saw each other a few weeks ago and we're, you know, very happy, you know. And was that was that a sort of for a pint? It was a funeral, actually. <laughs> <coughs> Since you ask. Okay, I'll move on. Um, What's your next question? <laughs> well, because then you rekindled the bromance to some extent, didn't you, during the during the independence referendum? Uh, I mean, in terms of your leadership of Better Together, did you enjoy it? No. <laughs> Anyone who tells you a referendum is a good thing is wrong. Uh, life is not a series of binary choices. Um, the Scottish referendum was one of the most divisive, unpleasant, um, and horrible experiences that I lived through. It went on for three and a half years. You know, uh, still going on now. It's, well, it, it is, uh, which is why, you know, frankly, um, in two months ago at the general election, a majority of people, including people, some people who voted yes, said, look, we've had enough referendums. You know, we just don't want any more of it. But you, know, you still have friendships that are ruptured, people in the same families not speaking to each other. You know, and, you know I fully understand, I've always accepted those people who take a different view to where Scotland ought to be than I do. Uh, but, you know, there are, you know, a hardline core who just, you know, they believe unless they get it, nothing else is good can possibly happen. And, you know, it, 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 it's not dead. You know, it's a bit like, you know, Monty Python's parrot. It's just resting at the moment. Um, but I, I, you know, I think um, if Nicola Sturgeon has any sense, she will concentrate on what is, should be alarming people in Scotland every day, is what's going on in education, what's going on in health, where it is going down and down and down. They've been in for 10 years now. Um, uh, and I think people in Scotland are heartily fed up with it. But, you know, I think the Brexit referendum, actually, it was an, another classic example of where... What a way to decide our country's future, where none of the things we're wrestling today with even figured. It was all about 350 million for the NHS, which we now know is a downright lie. Um, and it was this, you know, this vacuous statement, take back control. You know, it's like make America great again. You know, it's, it's, we know what it's about. Um, but uh, it's, you know, there's no way to run anything. So I would not recommend it. And I would, whoever leads, if there is another one, it won't be me. <laughs> Did you want to lead it first time? No, no, I did it because nobody else would do it. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it I've, you know, in 2012, I spent ages going around people saying, you know, are you going to run this? Because I would be happy to help and so on. And it's the old saying, if you want something, do, do it yourself. Uh, so that's why Better Together was set up. Um, and also, you know, the, the Electoral Commission would recognise a yes and a no side. Mm. Uh, so there had to be one on the on the, the no side. So, but, you know, it, it is hard, hard work. You're running a three-and-a-half-year campaign. And also, you know, it's interesting also, you know, today we're talking about fake news and um, alternative facts. This was pioneered in Scotland under the noses of the very journalists who are saying, oh, this is a new phenomenon. It was here. You remember it was called Project Fear here, and it's called fake news in America. And, you know, 
alternative facts, like, you know, we will keep the pound. It was just an alternative fact. It was a statement. No basis for it, whatever. Um, so, I, you know, I just found it very, very dispiriting. In fact, the general, the general election was light relief by comparison. <laughs> In terms of how that referendum unfolded, because no had been ahead for so long, and sometimes by quite significant leads, and then there was that wobble towards the end. And the perception is that the three major parties in Westminster finally woke up and they all got on trains up to Scotland to try and save the day. Does that tally with your experience? <coughs> no. Um, it, it, right at the start in 2012 when we launched it, I said this is going to be close. Some people say, yeah, yeah, we, everybody says that. Uh, but the, the, all the evidence is that most people don't make their minds up on these things until you, you come closer. What undoubtedly was the case, there was a rogue poll as it turned out two weeks before, which showed us, I think, neck and neck, or you know, the, uh, ironically, it was commissioned by the Daily Telegraph, of all people who were trying to be helpful, they said. Um, <laughs> but um, what it did, it, did, it galvanised no voters and saying, this might actually happen. Um, uh, and uh, you know, and the, the margin was 10%, which is precisely the margin that our pollsters told us at the beginning of August, you know, six weeks before. They said it'll come down to that, uh, but there could be a crossover. And I remember saying to this guy, he's a very good pollster, and I said, but surely if it crosses over, they'll get the momentum. And he said, well, that's a problem, but you need to be ready for it. So it actually, it w if it had happened a week later, I think it would have been a real problem for us because it's very difficult in the last four days to change very much. Two weeks out, you can change things. Uh, but, you know, frankly, one of the things that, I, you know, the referendum was largely decided by people in Scotland, um, you know, in terms of the speakers and all, all the rest of it. In fact, we, we had a visa system for the Tory party that there was a deal that I had that, that none of them would be allowed out unless we said they could come up because some of them were like, when you, I wish to be personally offensive, but it has to be said that the contribution of Ian Duncan Smith wasn't entirely helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is worse than someone who's got Scottish relations but doesn't actually live here, but knows what's good for us. Uh, the second worst are the ones who own a bit of Scotland and feel that they've got uh, some... some Sound like you're turning, Alistair. Say, what? <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, you know, it... it, 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 it you know, I don't think it was that. What I will say, going back to where I think you came into, is there is no doubt that the speech that Gordon made, I think, virtually to the poll, and I have known him for 30 odd years, is the best speech I've ever heard him make. He was on excellent form. The emotion, the argument, it was first, first class. It was a fascinating thing to watch, sort of, not really from afar, but from, from England. Across um, the border, you mean? Yeah, across the border, yeah. Sort of. <laughs> worrying about what, what would happen. And I, I remember watching those TV debates with Alex Salmond. And it just, between you and him, I mean, were they nerve-wracking? Were you, were you, did you feel any sort of tingle of fear before those events? Yeah, you do, I may not show it. Uh, but um, before you do anything, you know, even now when I do radio or television and, you know, stakes are so high now, if you, if you don't go in feeling apprehensive and fearful, you will make a mess of it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, and for both those debates, you lose about four or five days when you have to, you know, people say you shouldn't, but you do need to be trained. You know, it's because you're, you're not actually speaking to people in the room. You are speaking to people sitting at home who will engage with you only, only if you think you're speaking to them in language they can identify with and you're saying things that they can relate to. Uh, but if you're looking around the audience, engaging the audience, what they see is somebody who looks, you know, like the football managers on Saturday night, you know, the way they look down and say, the boy done well, and they're looking this way and looking that, they're not engaging with you at home. So you, d you do need training. Um, and, uh, you, know, you know, both of us had it, and you could see as we went into the arenas, all the sort of 
seconds, as it were, standing there holding the towels. And you know, um, I'm not sure they either of them changed anything actually. What was your assessment of him as a as an opponent? He's, he's, a, he's a very worthy opponent. You know, um, you know he is. You know, he's a, you know a very formidable physical presence. I mean, you know, he's still at it today. You know, in his shows he's doing here. I mean, what um, sort of politician ends up on a stage in Edinburgh? Well, <laughs> I, I took the precaution not to have my name on the poster. <laughs> <laughs> but were there diplomatic channels open between, not just between you and he, but between the yes and the no camps? Were there ever sort of... Very, very little. No. Very little. Because the, the actually, it was... In normal political life, there is a fair amount of, you know, like, you know, saying, right, we'll do our manifesto on the Monday, you do it on Tuesday, so you don't get the obvious uh, clash. But, you know, the, the, the dislike, if you like, you know, the tensions between the two sides, um, not, not so much about the politicians, but it, it was there. That was one of the reasons why, you know, I, I really didn't like it. And I'd strongly recommend that we never, ever have one again. And were there any mind games, you know, in the spin room or... Prior, would, would, would someone ever try and sort of say things to you beforehand to try and put you off, or you, would you ever try that on him? No, that was my own supporters. You know, <laughs> you know when you do the mock interviews and stuff mm. like that. You know, and you learn. You know, someone asks you some really terrible question, you can't look at them in the stunned silence. You go, I, "Thank you for that question. I was just going to turn to that point or something, something like that." Yeah, but no, there was none of that sort of dirty tricks that you're asking. It was, it, it was okay. Um, it, you just, it just it, it, all I remember was it was a long, long slog, and it contributed almost entirely to my decision to leave uh, Parliament in 2015, because I just didn't want to do this anymore. Well, a, a lot of politicians of your generation took that decision, and, and Jack Straw and John Reid. There are other Scottish politicians around the world who've gone on to sort of bigger things, and one of them's in the White House. Um, <laughs> have you ever met? The President of the United States, the current incumbent? Not this one. I met the previous three. Uh, but um, no, I have not yet had the pleasure of meeting President Trump. And what, in terms of how he uses his Scottish ancestry, is that something that, that offends you or does it not bother you too much? Well, I have mixed feelings. His mother comes from the Isle of Lewis, where my mother comes from. <laughs> although my mother hastens to point out that he comes, their family come from a different place to where my mother came from. Um, so, uh, and he did. Some of you may remember he flew into Stornoway Airport uh, to visit the relations and flew out about, I think, 30 minutes later. Um, uh, but I know his, his sister, who is, a, I think, a, like a county court judge in America, she comes every year and has, contributes a lot. You know, so, you know, it, 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 it's um, the family ties there. But, you know, I mean, it won't surprise you to know that if I was in America, I wouldn't have voted for him. <laughs> yes, that wasn't going to be my next question. Um, <laughs> Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. 
tap the banner to go to monday.com. So the presidents you have met, Clinton and, and Bush and Obama, of the ones that are closest to Trump, Bush was the one who horrified a lot of British people, and particularly at a time when that came when a Labour government in this country ended up being very close to him on, on foreign jaunts, so to put it. Um, what was he like to, to deal with, George W? Well, you know, one of these things that, oddly, um, I would have shared the same view as you were characterising when I looked at him on the television, but I did, I did have an unexpected opportunity to speak to him on his own. When in 2008, you know, they just after the banking bailout, um, the largest 20 economies, the G20 group of uh, economy, uh, uh, presidents, prime ministers, finance ministers met in Washington under George W. Bush's uh, uh, chairmanship. And we were all going for a sort of working dinner. And there was an entourage leaving the British embassy, driving to the White House. And Gordon and his lot seemed to have the first 20 cars, and I got one at the end. We got the bus, the, 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 the minibus. And then when we got to the White House, my car was sort of sticking onto the pavement. So I had to get out and walk past this entourage. And by the time I got to the front door of the White House, the front door was shut, you know, absolutely shut. The problem was, surrounding the front door were thousands of press people with flash cameras, television cameras, journalists. And I had to walk up these steps. You have to walk up, you know, sort of, palaces where you walk up the things and I had to knock at the door and all I could think of was you just imagine if the door doesn't open the Daily Mail's got an amazing photograph the next day of the British Chancellor being refused happily there was a nice man on duty on the other side who let me in and I walked into the hall the White House isn't actually very big it's lots more than you think and there standing on his own in the hall was George W Bush and to my surprise he said hello Alistair nice to see you again and I'd forgotten you know, I had met him very briefly a few months earlier. I don't know how he remembered me, I don't know. But we, we, started, we chatted for about five minutes. Um, and what was remarkable was I thought, this is not the man I see on television. This is someone who's actually quite thoughtful. And, you know, he was talking about, you know, the Obama presidency, what they would do and all the rest of it. And uh, it was really quite interesting. And it's, it's not often you get to be any president of the United States, but um, it was okay. <laughs> a lot of people in the Labour movement had a serious problem with it, though, didn't they? They didn't like... Being close to Bush, they didn't feel comfortable being close to what they saw as a very right wing Republican. Um, in terms of, you say you sort of found him interesting, was he, was he more intelligent than you expected? Yes. You know, and, and, and rather more insightful than, than, than I thought. But you know, I think you know, your broader question is you know, like, it's rather like you know, the controversy as of today about you know, should Trump come here on a state visit? Yeah. Um, and you know, someone was making the point, well, Macron. Uh, who, you know, supposed to be the new hope in France, had uh, um, President Trump across, you know, in, in the Bastide celebrations. The, you know, the fact is, whatever government we've got here, and whatever governments you've got in America and Europe, you have to, you have to deal with them. You know, you, you, you look at the difficult, the patently obvious difficulties we've got, got with um, North Korea just now, where there is virtually no diplomatic contact. And the risk is, if you're not talking to people, then you end up with, you know, <coughs> war. And I thought in the last, you know, 20 years, we've had enough experience to see that can go very, very wrong and profoundly wrong, with consequences that will last for generations. So Donald Trump called you up and said, Alistair, I'd like you to give me some advice. Things aren't going so well at the moment. What advice would you give President Trump? Well, I'll meet him in Stornoway, you've got to go <laughs> But if he said, I want, you know, what, what three things can I do to, to rescue my premiership? 
well, you know, it's about as likely as me being offered a free trip to Mars tomorrow morning, you know. <laughs> um, I'm John Valvo was very well, but I'll speak to virtually anybody. <laughs> but you, you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't suggest a particular policy direction for him or anything like that? Well, where do you start? <laughs> um, you know, I think Trump's problem is that, as of now, he's got absolutely nothing through. Um, and I just wonder, what are all these, you know, people in the American Midwest and the Rust Belt, what are they going to say in four years' time when the steelworks haven't reopened and the coal mines aren't reopening, the jobs aren't coming back? Um, you, know, you know, it's a big thing. I notice already some of people are, are talking about there's a conspiracy to stop them doing things. Uh, but, you know, I, any, you know, any politician, and though he is clearly different, um, I've, you know, I've met people, lots of people like him, who are, whose background is totally business, who have an alarming disregard to how you, to the fact that government is not the same as running a business. You know, it painfully isn't. Uh, so I just, I just don't know. And I think the other thing, you know, from a left, you know, left perspective, I ideally hope the Democrats come up with a decent candidate. And remember, we're not that far away from the next round. Because the Americans, it's basically, once you're two years in, you're on the election trail. And, you know, I don't see any sign of anybody yet. But didn't Hillary Clinton have a sort of disproportionately hard time? She was, she was highly qualified for the job. She had reputation issues. But were, were, those, were those genuine, do you think? Or was there a reaction against the Clinton brand? I think partly that. But, uh, you know, I, I was in New York um, just before the presidential election. And I was in a taxi which, which had been driven by a 50-something year old man, a white working class, uh, and he said he's a registered Democrat. And uh, he said uh, about voting for Trump. And I said, why are you doing that? And he went on about, I didn't think Hillary represented him. And I said, what is a billionaire Republican going to do for you? And he said, absolutely nothing. He said, but. Uh, he said, he won't take any notice of me. If I vote for him, maybe next time somebody will take some notice of me. And I think that was a Democrat's problem. It has been Labour's problem in a lot of the country. People are saying, you're not taking any notice about what I think, or you haven't got anything that you know, appeals to me. And if the Democrats don't rediscover that, and you know, there's a similar thing with Corbyn, I suppose Bernie Sanders can galvanize a certain amount of that, but you know, it worries me you know, that, as people have been saying, in a world where so much Politics is now being formulated on what you're against rather than what you're for. Uh, you know that you can rally a lot of people to be against things, but it doesn't stay usually. If a part of political party doesn't have a heart and soul and a core set of beliefs that can get people to bind around it, uh, then you know you may have people to here today that will be going in tomorrow. I was in New York just before the presidential election and met a taxi driver who was voting for Trump. And when I asked him why, he said, "Because crazy times." Need a crazy guy. <laughs> it's the worst possible argument for, for Donald Trump. But there's a lot of talk here, isn't there? Of, 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 why don't we have a new political party? What about a centrist party that was pro-European and was pro-business and, and would that work? And obviously, you know, the Labour experience is informed by the SDP and how that very quickly figured, uh, fizzled out. Do you think there is a market in Britain if, if Corbyn stays and continues to be a sort of anti-European uh, hard left leader and the Tory state Brexit and on the right, is there a market for a middle new party? No, I don't think there is. Um, well, certainly not the moment. If we look across and see what's happening in France, Macron, you know, has surprised everybody by not only winning the French presidential election, although, you know, some of the others helped considerably by what they were up to. <laughs> um, 
but he also he won a majority in the uh, National Assembly, which people thought was extraordinary. And yet, here you are today, his approval ratings are lower than President Hollande's. Um, and I think part of the problem is, as I was saying just a moment ago, any political party, you know, whether the Labour Party or the Conservative Party in this country, you, you, know, you have to have a set of core beliefs and a set of um, you know, values that people can say, well, actually, when I look at politics, they're more like what I think than that lot are. If you set up something that's just like a new product to the market, and it's here today, and rather like the SDP in the 1980s, they were gone by the next election. Uh, and you know, they morphed into the Lib Dems, but the Lib Dems is living proof of the fact that being a centre party can be rather difficult, and it can sometimes take a long time before you come back again. Which is why I've always said that I would rather, um, you know, you probably picked up when I have got some differences with uh, the leadership of my party, but I'd rather stay in that party and argue my case than set off on some adventure, you know, that, which frankly I don't see running anywhere. It may be the talk of the salons of you know, London, but it's outside there, I'm not so sure. In terms of your personal ambition then, when you, because you rose That's to... That's all finished now, <laughs> <laughs> But when you first started, I mean, you rose to be Chancellor of the Exchequer, you had a you know, long cabinet career. When you first came into politics, did you want to be Prime Minister? No. Um, when I first came into politics, it uh, was because it, when I was living in the old constituency of central Edinburgh, and whose MP at that time was uh, Robin Cook. And Robin, when the boundaries changed, as they do every few years, he moved to Livingston, where he remained the MP until they died. And um, I was asked by the constituency party, would you like to stand in Edinburgh Central? And I really didn't want to do it. And besides, I was a lawyer at that stage, and I had a really good court case starting on the Monday after the election, June 1987, which you know, paid for my training and my holidays and everything else. And um, my wife said to me, you should stand because otherwise you'll spend the rest of your life moaning about the fact that you've never stood and so on. So I remember in the 1980s, um, the map was as blue in Scotland as it is now, actually. <laughs> the, the Tories have won back a lot of these seats. But, you know, central Edinburgh was a Tory seat at that stage. And I didn't think I'd have hope in hell. And yet, you know, in that election, what happened 10 years later in England in 1997 happened in Scotland. You know, people like Sam Galbraith and Brian Wilson, you know, we, we won seats that were basically quite solid Tory seats. So it was a complete accident uh, that I became an MP in the first place. Uh, and then I had 10 long years in opposition, which is a hell of a long time. But I was fortunate. I had 13 years when I you know, could do things. But there must have been periods then, once you're, once you're in the game and then you're a major player, where you start to think, I might have a, I might have a crack at this. No, I, I, I think if you... you I think the, my observation of people who have been Prime Minister is you have to really want to do it and you have to be ready to do it seven days a week, 24 hours a day. There is no respite, there is no aspect of your life that isn't going to be changed. Um, and I've just never seen the attraction of that. I, I joined the Labour Party because I was interested in it. You know, it was change. You know, I, I did, it wasn't a way of life for me. You know, and that's what it becomes. But did people ever tap you up? Did people ever say, come on, if you stand, I'll support you and we'll, we'll, we'll go on a dream ticket? Only they've had an awful lot to drink. <laughs> <laughs> but it does seem that, particularly that generation where it was all about Tony and Gordon, that other leading lights didn't really get a look in. Did it, did it feel like that around the cabinet table, even amongst those of you who didn't want to be Prime Minister? Yeah, and because Tony and Gordon were so dominant in the Labour Party, you know, from John Smith's uh, death, and it was obvious that when Tony went, then Gordon would take over. Um, I, you know, I think... You know, looking back, 
um, as I said in my book, which by the way is still available for more good books. <laughs> um, uh, but I think because the party became very centrist, as almost as a reaction to the chaos of the 1980s, mm. um, that a lot of the other people who, because I think whenever you have a leadership contest, it should be, you know, give, you, give people a choice. Um, but you know, it, it can't manufacture these things. It's just the way it is. You know, I mean, look at look at the present time. And the, you know, one of the reasons that Mrs. May is safe is because there is no obvious Tory to succeed her. Uh, if one of them thought he or she, uh, more likely a he, could do it, they'd be going for a no. But my guess is they will not do it. Leave her to, you know, crash the car and Brexit, and then one will come along and say, well, look, it's time for a change now. I'll do things differently. So it, it's never you, you don't always have a perfect selection, but. Yes, it's always good to have too many people to choose from them. You know, no choice at all. Not enough. Uh, okay, we'll open the, the floor to some questions. We've got a, a microphone that can come and find people. Uh, so if you've got a question, we'll be able to take two or three. Just indicate, put your hand up, and we'll bring a, a microphone to you. Anything you'd like to ask at all? Yes, the gentleman there. We'll bring a microphone to you. Do let us know your name, and then ask your questions to Alistair. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name's Simon Lowe, and my question is... Um, on the assumption that Great Britain does leave the single market in the customs union, where does that leave Scotland's aspirations to remain in the common market, in the EU? Well, um, I, 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 I've never believed the argument that, um, that in Scotland it's a done deal that Scotland would actually want to go into the European Union and leave the rest of the UK at the same time. I think the Brexit decision is a bad one, a very bad one, but, you know, Three quarters of our trade is south of the border. It's not, you know, across the North Sea, and also, it, you know, I, it's, I think it's broadly accepted that about a third of people who voted yes in the Scottish referendum voted to leave the European Union, and the Euro, the Euro for example, which you almost certainly have to join as a EU country, is as popular in Edinburgh as it is in Essex. You know, it's, it just it isn't. Uh, so I, I I don't see that happening. Uh, what a uh, slightly broader question. Being an ex-politician, let me just answer the question you didn't ask. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm all in favour of as long as a transition is possible because I'm pretty sure that all the things that were never discussed in the referendum are going to become abundantly obvious. Uh, the customs union is only one. Today it's Northern Ireland and its relationship with the Republic. Uh, we've got freedom of movement to discuss. Uh, you know, there's uh, so many things. And, you ask yourself, well then, why the hell have we done this if the government's coming up with straight policies to get us back to where we were and we're not quite as good? You know, I'm optimistic that in 20 years' time we'll sort of something out. It's just sad that it might take that long to do it. I mean, you, you say you don't, you don't like referendums. I mean, surely at some point we'd, we'd have a Labour Party promising one to, to rejoin the EU? Well, I honestly don't know whether we would do it at the moment. Um, I don't mind whether you do... You, I, my preference is general elections ought to sort these things out. Um, and, but, and, uh, just at the moment, uh, I, you know, I may be wrong, but I just get the sense that most people in this country are just fed up to the back teeth of referendums and elections, actually. And, uh, but you know, th those things will change. But I'm afraid, you know, the great thing about you know, Britain generally is we're pretty pragmatic and we're pretty good at you know, sorting things out. But at the moment, we're looking at a battle with the Tory party, which is spilt over, and there's a grave risk of damaging you know, our prospects, and not really our, our children's prospects, you know, for a long, long time to come. Okay, I think there's a question uh, up at the back, and there's a lady on the way. Uh, on the left-hand side there, yeah. Yep. Just the lady there. 
Sorry. Or is it not long enough? <laughs> oh, it's not quite. Thank you. Um, if you had to play a game of Cruise, Murray, Kill with... Sorry, just sorry is it loud enough? If you had to play a game of Cruise, Murray, Kill... Cruise? Murray... Cruise. Yeah, you're just going to cruise with them for two weeks, spend every living minute with them, share a okay. cabin, everything. Okay? Well, looking at the demographic, quite a lot of people in here have been on cruises. So. <laughs> That's fine. With um, Jeremy Corbyn, Ed Miliband, and Gordon Brown, who would you take on which? So, cruise, marry, or kill mm -hmm. Corbyn, Miliband, Brown. <laughs> Can you kill all three? Well, I do, I do have a small boat in the Outer Hebrides, and I quite like sailing it alone. <laughs> You've just made an eloquent case for another lone voyage. <laughs> would you... Okay, let's just do the nice one. Who out of the three of them would you most like to go on a cruise with? Of who? Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, Edmund Band, and Gordon Brown. I'm spoiled for choice. <laughs> yeah, as I'm not a politician, well, I can't... I, I'm just not prepared to answer your question. Okay. Anyway, I have no okay. Good. okay. Oh, an easy one. Who would you rather kill? <laughs> What's the next question? <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the chap on the uh, opposite end of the aisle, and then I'll take one more. Thank you. My name's James, and I'm a unionist from Northern Ireland. Um, a democratic um, one? No. <laughs> an Ulster one? Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, with the possibility, small possibility, as you say, of a second Scottish independent referendum, I'm worried about the possible wording of the question. Um, should Scotland be an independent country was the first one. That's a purely ideological question, and I think people are more likely to think, yes, why shouldn't it be an independent country? If it was free and more of an action, should Scotland leave the UK, then I think people are less likely to vote in favour of changing the status quo. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on maybe the wording of a future referendum. It was the Electoral Commission, you know, which I think has got a checkered record of all of this, that decided on the wording of both referendums, actually. Um, uh, but I, I, you know, it's a little thing, I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. I honestly don't think there's going to be another referendum anytime soon. You know, it's, you just look what happened three months ago. I just don't think uh, it's going to be a problem that's going to tax us too much at the moment. But it's a good question, isn't it, about the wording of things, because you could make it a lot easier, you know, do you want Scotland to, you know, leave the economically prosperous <laughs> United Kingdom? Or do you wish to commit suicide? <laughs> <laughs> With either Jeremy Corbyn, Ed Miliband, or the rep. Um, yes, the person right at the back in the middle. I'm not making a very good pitch to be the next host of Question Time, really, but... Hi, I'm Stuart. Uh, as an RBS employee for the last 38 years, <laughs> Thank you for saving our bank and saving the world, obviously. Um, what's your economic view with regards to the bank now being back in the black and the disposal of the government-owned shares? RBS? Yes. Um, well, it's good that it is back in, in the black, but as you know, they still have issues to sort out with the American regulators, you know, the fines in relation to the IBM, the ABM, the Dutch bank acquisition. And I think Ross McEwen's done a very good job in uh, turning it uh, round. Um, as for selling the shares, I think that will take... It's much, much bigger than Lloyd's or HBOS. It'll take an awful lot longer. Uh, and uh, a lot of it will depend on the economic climate. 
uh, you know, trying to sell bank shares in an economy that's slowing down in a very uncertain economic background is, is difficult. So I think the state is likely to own RBS for some considerable time, unless the governments went into a great hit. And the problem is once you do that, you then, because the debt crystallizes, you then, you're then stuck with it. So I, I think it'll be, you know, in state hands for some time yet. I remember you saying after, after the economic crash uh, in, a, in a lecture, I think it was in the, in the Speaker's House that I watched on the Parliament channel, as I'm sure everyone did. Um, <laughs> That's very sad. Was, I love those sort of things. And um, you said that actually you should ask questions when the going's good, not when the going is bad. So uh, looking at the world as it is now, what are the things you think we should be asking questions about? Well, I think it's linked with the... Oh, that's good. Um, uh, it's linked with, you know, with the banking crisis. The, one of the big things that I think governments and regulators and banks themselves never focused on is the interconnected nature of banking. Uh, you know, when, in the old days, if a small bank in Florida went down, it was a tragedy for Florida, and that's it. What happened in 2007 was when it went down, within you know, a couple of weeks, Northern Rock found it couldn't raise any, it couldn't raise any money. And I think, you know, if you look at today, you know, the next financial crisis will almost certainly come from a different source than this one, because that's what happens. It's the interconnectivity which, you know, the, 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 the internet, that, you know, the, the big information companies like, you know, Google and Amazon, uh, and the ability uh, people have got, and clearly have got, to hack into it, to disrupt it. And it isn't just the, the loss of service, but the panic you can induce and uh, you know the loss of service. You know, you think how, how many things can you actually do today without it being connected to the internet one way or another? Look what happened to British Airways, where, as I understand it, somebody on a Saturday morning pulled out the plug of the computer to Hoover underneath it, put it back in, and didn't start up again. Um, what I found even more alarming was that the computers on the airplane stopped working as well, which uh, you know, but it, it, it's so it, it, it's so interconnected, and and of course it you find rather banks. You know, the, the big global companies are very global when things are going well. But when they go, go wrong, they become very national indeed. Mm -hmm. And somebody's got to pick up the bits. And this is what happened to us in 2000, 2000, 2007, 2008. So that's what worries me. The fact that I do not think, because of the global nature of so much it affects us, there is, and you ask who's in charge, well the answer is nobody in effect because there's too many people. Do you worry that if there was another sort of crash or shock or wherever it came from, that actually there wouldn't be a public appetite for the government to, to intervene? Um, I think that will endure just for as long as we will see the consequences of it. You know, if, um, uh, if people, you know, some of you in here will remember the fuel uh, tanker driver strike in 2001-2002, when you could see people going into supermarkets and stripping the shelves and coming out with armfuls of stuff they could not possibly use. And That's just my weekly shop. <laughs> you know, any, anyone who thinks that it's okay to let these things collapse, I think just wants to think for you know, 30 seconds to what life is like if they do actually collapse. So I think naturally people would be annoyed, reluctant, and all the rest of it. But I'd say I think the next crisis will almost certainly come from somewhere slightly different. So it's not my history repeating itself exactly again. Uh, but government, one of the things governments are there to do is, you know, when, you know, as a last resort, they are there to make sure things do not collapse, which is what we had to do in 2008. Uh, and, you know, I'm for governments intervening then, not for leaving it to chance, uh, because, you know, the, the consequences of that could be catastrophic. Do you worry that the, the current Labour leadership would, would, would have a different view? 
Well, I don't know. Because um, I don't know, you know, I, I've heard lots of speeches about, you know, wicked bankers and all the rest of it. Uh, but I, I don't know, because there's, there's not many people around, you know, the top of the party now who've actually been in government. Or, you know, a lot of things in government that come on, you have to deal with are not things that were ever in your manifesto or people talked about before the election. You know, whether it's foot and mouth or a banking crisis. Uh, you know, somebody had said, I became Chancellor in the summer of 2007 when the sea was completely flat, calm, tranquil. The first interview I ever did with the editor of the Financial Times, you know, he said, normally departments you go into are a mess, things are great, going absolutely great. And yet, about four weeks later, it was the first sign that things were going wrong, when it was 10 years ago, last week actually, a big French bank closed two of its investment funds because they no longer knew how much they were worth. And that was just the start. It was the first symptom, wasn't it, of course. It was the first symptom that things were going wrong, and no one could possibly prepare you for that. Uh, we're almost out of time, but it, it was the biggest question, really, of the, of the political year, and I shall end by putting it to you. What's the naughtiest thing you've ever done? <laughs> yes. <laughs> my answer to that is I still have only got some years in front of me, so I'm not going to tell you. I'll, I'll tell you on my deathbed. <laughs> well, I hope I'm not there. It'd be rather macabre, but... Um, <laughs> wielding the knife. <laughs> but, um, Nothing immediately springs to mind on the naughty front, not from childhood. Well, lots of things, but they, they spring to mind, but they're not going to spring out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I certainly, I've never walked a corn, through a cornfield when I wasn't supposed to. Not fully clothed. <laughs> there we are. Uh, well, uh, what an image to end on. Uh, Alistair, it's been an absolute treat. Thank you all uh, for coming to this. It's always a pleasure to do these at the Edinburgh Festival. You'll be able to download the podcast soon. And all that remains for us all to say is uh, a huge thank you to a terrific guest, Alistair Darling. Alistair Darling there in front of a packed debating hall at the Gilded Balloon in the Edinburgh Festival. And it's always a novelty to do these events outside of the, the St James Theatre or the other palaces it's now called and, and, and do them in Edinburgh because there was obviously a slight... Uh, difference to them in Scotland, um, particularly when, when I've had Scottish guests there, and uh, I think particularly of Alistair, and of course with Davidson a couple of years ago. And Alistair was, as you would expect, uh, deeply intellectual, very charming, um, but wears it very lightly. And, and, and it's so refreshing to talk to someone that, that is so clear in their politics, and that, and that Labour politics and, and the values of the Labour movement clearly mean so much to him. He's a, he's a person of immense weight and you, you, you get that the moment you meet him. He's also an iconic politician, you know, he's, he's very distinctive looking as, as, as many people have remarked throughout the years and he has a real presence about him and it was a pleasure to, to spend time with him and to, to do that interview. As I said at the start of the podcast, I'm on tour throughout autumn and winter in various towns up and down the country. Uh, do come and see me doing my brand new show, there's loads of impressions in there, Boris and a lot of it is about Donald Trump. And you can get those dates again at the website, mattford.com slash live. I'll be unveiling new political party guests later in the year, although I can confirm that in September my guest is Michael Heseltine, which I'm very, very excited about. As always, thanks for downloading this. I've only recently cottoned on to the idea, um, or in fact the fact, that if people leave positive reviews, this helps the podcast reach more people and things like that. So if you could leave a, a positive review if it, uh, 
if indeed that reflects your feelings about it, then please do. And keep spreading the word about it. Um, I, I feel that particularly at a time like this where so much debate is so antagonistic that for there to be a little oasis of calm where people can sit down with uh, major politicians and ask them questions in a reasonable manner is there's something perhaps uh, more to be said for it now than when it started. But there we go. Thank you for downloading it. I hope you are having a wonderful summer. And in view of the fact that you may be listening to this years in the future, I hope we're all still alive by then. Ta-ra! Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.